Again, this morning's reading is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. Listen as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cease to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and with shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if... uh You've ever thought about the fact that certain words to some ears are very offensive. Certain words carry a lot of baggage. To some ears, the word, just the word authority is a bad word. And As a Christian, I'm not surprised by that because when I read my Bible, at the very beginning of that Bible, the very first temptation that was presented to humankind was a temptation to believe that no one could have authority and be good at the same time. So when Satan tempts Eve, he says to her, did God really say that? Clearly, God is withholding something. He's using his authority in a bad way. And of course, Eve believed him, and she rebelled against what? She rebelled against God's authoritative word. You can can eat anything you want, just don't eat this one thing. And it's the one thing that she chose to eat. Ever since then, humankind has mismanaged, misappropriated, mishandled human authority. Husbands domineer wives, bosses manipulate employees, referees invent calls. (laughs) But that does not mean that the problem is with authority itself. Is authority an evil? Is authority something that is wrong? And if not, how is authority to be used in the church? We've been moving through this series on the church. It's lasted for a long time. 
And we have been trying to think of um, what sort of directed our thoughts in this series is just thinking of a typical human being. And, and the very first thing that happens is that human being gets saved. And so we looked at the thief on the cross. That thief on the cross had nothing to offer Jesus. Absolutely nothing. The only thing he had to offer Jesus was his sinful life. And he calls out to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Which shows you that in order to become a Christian, you have to be like the thief on the cross. You have to admit the only thing I have to offer Jesus is my sinful self. You might have noticed a lot of us smiling as we sang the third verse of that last song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. How can I know I've been forgiven? For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. Pardon is having your, your guilt removed. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. See, a Christian is a person who looks to God and says, the only thing I have to offer you is my sinful self, but you sent a savior into the world and Christ died for our sins. And you said in your Bible that everyone who repents of their sins and puts their trust in Jesus and in the finished work of Jesus is going to be saved. That's where the Christian life begins. Are you a Christian? Just because you're here doesn't make you Christian. Uh, just because you have a sort of Christian heritage in your family doesn't make you Christian. What makes you a Christian, you ready? This is like super important. What makes you a Christian is you've repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done. I trust you've done that. And if you have not done that, I would urge you to do it. I would urge you to turn from your sins and trust on Christ. And then you can really sing in the first person, like we sang in that hymn, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. Not because of a bunch of good things I did, but because of what Christ has done for me. So when God saves a person, the very next thing to happen to them is they are to be baptized, immersed in water, and then they become a member of the church, and then they participate in the Lord's Supper. That's kind of how our series has Flowed. That is the normal, regular pattern every person ought to follow. Now, there's some rare exceptions to that path, especially when you're in the realm of frontier missions where there's no existing church to join. You're the first Christian, there's no church yet. But on the whole, to quote the Mandalorians, this is the way. So we have taken our human and we have brought them into a a state of being a member of a local church. And hopefully they're gonna stay in that state until the day they die. And today, what I wanna do today is focus in on their life in the church. And in particular, how they function as members in the church when that church has leaders, which we would call elders. So that is what requires us to think carefully about authority. 
We saw when we looked at membership that members have authority in the life of the church. It's an authority as a group to act, to bind and loose. Remember that in the language of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. We're binding people to us. And then in the case when they demonstrate that they're not really following Jesus, we loose them from us. And members have an authority to guard the gospel, to make sure that the true gospel is being preached and lived in the local church. But every church also has leaders, elders. Now, this can be confusing, but in the New Testament, there's one office that gets about five or six different names. So elders are called elders, pastors, bishops, overseers, shepherds, pastor teachers, let me look at my list. Did I ever forget any? No, I think I got them all. And those are all referring to one office. So there are, there are two offices in a local church, elders and deacons. We're not talking about deacons today. We're just talking about elders who are also called shepherds, pastors, pastor teachers, uh, stewards, all these things. So those elders are to exercise authority in the church. Now that should stop you right there and go, wait a second. I thought members had authority in the church. Now you're saying there's elders with authority in the church. So what is this? Is this like Battle of the Blades? Is this like the Prime Minister's office versus the Senate? This is a competition where, where each one is trying to, to ex, you know, exert their authority over the other. Well, I don't think that would be true. I hope you don't either. Uh, but authority, remember, authority is a gift from the Lord. Authority, we know that because he, he, in the creation mandate, he gives mankind authority. He says, go, right? Go out and subdue the earth. That's an authority that we are given. So the problem is not authority. The problem is when sinners exercise authority sinfully. Nobody has ever had more authority on earth than Jesus Christ. How did he do exercising authority? Pretty good, I'd say. <laughs> Uh, he did it excellently. So it's not a surprise when you, when you go all the way back to the beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's not a surprise then that when Jesus gets on the scene, one of the primary temptations that Satan brings to Jesus is to try and tempt him to use his authority selfishly. And Jesus, of course, does not fall prey to that temptation. But that is how authority is sinfully used. Good authority. Authority is, a, is, is, a, is, a, is to be used for the good of other people. And when it's used that way, authority is godly and it is good. That's why we've been singing about the authority of King Jesus today. He is an authority. The problem's not authority. The problem is when sinners use authority sinfully. David poetically expressed, the, did you catch this when Dwight read it for us earlier? This is 2 Samuel 23, uh, halfway through verse 3. This is what David says at the end of his life. King David, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Pause there. So he's ruling with fairness, justice, righteousness, and with an awareness that God is God and he's not. So when a king like that rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, now here's the poetic metaphor part, he dawns on them, on the people, like the morning light. What's it, do you get up for sunrises? Anybody here like a sunrise? 
Nobody gets up for sunrises. There's like four of us. Okay. Well, the rest of you should try it. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. This is my favorite time of year. And I get up in the morning, I read my Bible, and the sun comes up right in the window, and I'm like half distracted just watching the sunrise every morning. It's beautiful. He says, when, when you've got someone in authority who's ruling justly in the fear of God, it's like the dawn of the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. That's, meant, that's beautiful. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Not all rain is bad. There's a debate in the office this week. I like rainy days. Jaime doesn't, whatever. Uh, The rain is good for the earth, right? And so this is what David is saying here. He's saying, look, authority is not bad because when authority is used correctly, it's like the dawning of the sun. It's like the rain on the earth. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It prospers the land. That's why you have all these uh, commands in the New Testament to submit to authority. Even in, a, even in a world where men and women are wielding that authority sinfully, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, you just can't get around what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, here's the explanation, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. You may not like the government, God put them there. That's what you've got to deal with theologically. Therefore, Romans 13, 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So here's Paul writing to Christians who are probably in the throes of at least moderate persecution by an incredibly ungodly ruler. And he's telling them, yeah, God put that ruler there. And your job is to submit to that ruler. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, only work when the boss is around, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, you just have to deal with those texts Because implied in these texts is that bad masters, bad parents, bad husbands, bad politicians do not remove the expectation to submit to or to be in subjection to or to obey their authority. With, of course, the necessary caveat in place is is that if you tell me authority to do something that God forbids or you forbid me from doing something that God commands, I will still obey authority, just not yours. I will obey God's. He is the highest authority. But even when I disobey that human authority, I will do it in a particular way. Read all of 1 Peter if you need help with that. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Peter's saying, when you're disobeying that earthly authority and suffering for it, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, have no fear of them, nor be troubled troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Which means if you're put in the position where you've got to disobey an authority, say, at work, because that authority is telling you to do something God clearly forbids, the way in which you do it ought to be full of a peaceful heart 
that is exuding great hope. So when they ask you, why are you so calm about this? You say, well, let me tell you, because I serve a great king. My point here is just saying that it, until you've had to follow a leader you disagree with, you have not figured out the Bible's teaching on submission to authority. You will never agree with every authority. You just, it's, it's impossible. You'll always, you should agree with God's authority because it's perfect. But no human authority is perfect. There will always be reasons to disagree. That doesn't make authority a bad thing. You can use a fork to eat dinner or kill a person. The problem is not with a fork. So there is no question in the New Testament that members have authority and that elders have authority. And, and elders have an authority that members are to submit to. So how does that all work together? That's what I'm trying to get at. How do elders exercise authority without overstepping the authority of the members? And how do members exercise their authority authentically without just, you know, rubber stamping everything elders say? Is this a case of, you know, parliamentary, are, are the elders, the, the, um, the, the, the ministers of different portfolios and the members are the loyal opposition? <laughs> are we just always in, no, I don't think so. It's not elders versus members. And so I want to explore that a little more closely. Number one is this the authority of the members. We've been here, I'm just gonna summarize. What, what's the realm of authority for local church members? Members of Grace Fellowship Church, this is super important for you to pay attention to because this is what we need to grow in as a church. Priority number one, guard the what of the gospel. So remember we talked about the what of the gospel, what it is. So one of the primary jobs of every member is to make sure that the gospel, that matter of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, is kept very clear and very central in the life of the church, which means the members of the church need to know the gospel so well you can spot anything that's less than it. And so we're doing that, first of all, with incoming and fellow members. Uh, members are told, as we saw, to exercise the keys, right? The binding and the loosing. Exercise the keys of the kingdom. And that means their job is to examine potential new members to see if those new members hold to the what? The, the gospel. Does this person confess the same gospel? And that's not true just with incoming members. It's also true with existing members. So if another member of this church starts telling you that you got to read the Book of Mormon and you got to be rebaptized at a church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then you would say that's a major problem because you are adding to the gospel. That's a different gospel. And so if you do not repent from that wrong thinking, eventually you're probably going to have to be removed. You're going to be loosed. The members will act because you're not holding to the same what, the same concept the same gospel. So that's the first realm of member authority. Guard the gospel profession in incoming and in existing members. We join together around the gospel. Christ died for our sins and was raised. There is what joins us together. It's not our shared political beliefs. It's not our shared sports franchise fandom. What joins us together is we're all looking to Jesus and saying, this is what the Bible says. Christ died for our sins and was raised. And because of that, we come together. But we're also to guard the gospel as members in the pulpit. Open to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. 
And maybe this is one we've not thought about as much, but the authority of members also extends to guarding the gospel in the, in the whole ministry of the church, but in particular, the teaching of the church. Members are responsible to make sure their elders are preaching the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting by that that if a certain sermon is given and there's never a gospel appeal, somebody saying, you must repent and believe, that that particular preacher has failed in that instant. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. The issue here is, do the elders of the church hold fast to the gospel? If they start saying, you know, very regularly, you can be saved by doing good works or saying all roads lead to heaven, or saying, you know, it doesn't really matter how you live as long as you love Jesus. Those things are messing with the gospel, and the members of the church are to take action. And that action is exemplified in a place like Galatians chapter 1. So when Paul writes a letter to the Galatians, it's not to one church, it's to many churches. And in Galatians 1.6, he says, I'm astonished that you, the members of these churches, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The gospel they were turning to is um, now having to add Jewish customs on to be really saved, things like circumcision. So you're not really saved until you do that. That's adding to the gospel. Paul says, I'm, I'm astonished you're doing that. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, you just have to think about this verse here because Paul is condemning the churches in Galatia because they have failed to stop this false teaching in their churches. He doesn't call out the elders here. He calls out the churches as a whole for tolerating this. And he even goes so far as in verse 8 to say, even if we, meaning an apostle or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. That's the strongest of language. And so it seems here that Paul is looking to the church to act. He's saying, church, you can't tolerate that. If, if it's even your own pastors start adding to the gospel, you need to get rid of them. Now again, that's not an invitation to start court proceedings every time you hear something from the pulpit you slightly disagree with. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but what you're listening for is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed here. One day I'm going to die. And I'm going to go see the Lord, and that's going to be awesome. But what I hope most of all is that when I'm dead and gone, some guy comes in here and he starts adding to the gospel, that you, as the church, will immediately sniff it out and either correct him or get rid of him. I hope the same thing for me. I hope that if I had some bizarre accident or something and started preaching a false gospel, that you'd fire me. That's the responsibility of the members. Guard the gospel. You guard the what of the gospel, you guard the who of the gospel. Again, we've, we've talked about this before, but you're looking for not just what a person believes, but how a person lives. You're doing that with members that are coming in, you're doing that with existing members. It's a member responsibility. We know this. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul instructs the Corinthian church to act. So he's, he's an, an apostle. He's telling the church, I'm not going to discipline that person. That's up to you. You're the members of the church. What person is it? It's a guy who's living in an incestuous relationship with another member of the church, and 
not repenting and not wanting to repent. This is unrepentant, obvious, scandalous sin. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, when you are assembled, that's technical language, meaning when the church comes together, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present, the power of our Lord Jesus, you, members of the church in Corinthian, in Corinth, because you go to the front of the letter and it says he's writing to the church in Corinth, one local church. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So when you gather together as church, you corporately as the members are to remove him from your membership. You're to loose him. This is Matthew 18 again. So members are given the authority to act and remove a fellow member when that fellow member is walking in unrepentant sin. And that's an action, it's an action of the membership as a whole. The elders of Grace Fellowship Church cannot remove a member. It's the members who remove members. The members also have authority to evaluate and choose their leaders. So we guard the who of the gospel, not just in incoming and fellow members, but in the pulpit. There's only to be qualified men as elders. And when members are guarding the what of the gospel in their elders, they're, they're listening to what is preached. But when they guard the who of the gospel, they're making sure that their pastors are living lives that are consistent with the gospel, lives that are worth emulating and copying. So no pastor is perfect. That's not what we're suggesting. But he ought to live a life that's worth copying. If an elder is living contrary to the Bible, it's on the membership to remove him from the office of elder. Now, hopefully other elders will you know, do that too, but it's on the membership. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, he desires a noble task. Fair enough, noble task, noble thing to desire the office of elder. But nobody's to enter that office unless they've been examined by their fellow members. Therefore, Paul writes to Timothy, this is 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer must be above reproach. That's a catch-all phrase. It means there's no skeletons in the closet of that man's life. He's the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach all these things. Which means if a man is in the office of elder and he is living out of line with those qualifications, the church is responsible to remove him from the office of elder. 1 Timothy 5, look there for a moment. It's an important little section. 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, after encouraging the church to bless and encourage their, their well-serving elders, <laughs> Paul says to Timothy, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's kind of important because um, leaders of churches will be targeted. So if you accepted every accusation, there's presumably going to be false ones. And so you only accept accusations on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, those elders, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. You have very clear instructions here. Okay, you receive a charge against this elder. It's responsibility of the other elders to listen to that charge. Two or three witnesses, yes, you examine. That elder's in sin. 
It's not just a you know, quiet uh, golden handshake, here's the watch, walk away. It's bring him before the church and rebuke him before the church so that all the church may fear. Fear who? Fear the Lord. So the authority of members centers on keeping the main thing, the plain thing, as Alistair Begg always says, Christ died for our sins and was raised. That's the primary job and authority, sphere of authority for the members. Let's talk about the authority of the elders, and I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. It's worth pointing out, because it's not true everywhere, that we believe an elder is, first of all, a member of the local church which he serves. That is a theological statement. Within many traditions, many elders or pastors are appointed from outside of the, of the local church, and they are never members of the local church they pastor. I see zero evidence for this in the Bible. What we see in the Bible both exemplified and I think implied in certain texts, is that elders would be raised up, evaluated, installed, and removed by the members of the local church. I think that's really clear when you just think about the lists in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3, because it takes people who know you in order to evaluate you. And it's the local church that's charged back in 1 Timothy 5 with disciplining sinning pastors. It's not some ecclesial body outside of the church. So elders are first of all members of their local church. And once they are appointed to the office of elder, they take on new responsibilities and they take on new authority. So how do we know elders are to exercise authority? 1 Peter 5 verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Pause there. Shepherd. Uh, We probably don't think of shepherd the way a first century Christian or anybody would think of shepherd. We we kind of think of like black sheep, a little uh, just very tender, but it's tough work shepherding. And you are leading and you are guiding. And so to shepherd is used metaphorically in that way, to lead, to guide, even to rule. And then he uses exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. To oversee is to supervise, to guard, to oversee the flock. So there are certain ways that authority is to be exercised. And there are certain limits to that authority. But I'm just pointing out right at the front end that elders are to exercise authority in the local church. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. We'll get to more about this, but I want to think about their authority. Notice with me, first of all, that their authority is based on God's authority. So we go, we go back to verse 1 of 1 Peter 5. Look at it. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter identifies here as a local church elder. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He could have, but he chooses to self-identify as another elder. 
I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. But notice, shepherd the flock of God, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears. What's he saying? Peter is saying that the authority you have to exercise oversight is a delegated authority. It comes from the chief shepherd, which is precisely why I find as I get older, the language of stewardship is so useful. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, Paul wrote to Titus, an overseer, an elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. That means an elder does have authority, but it's not his. It doesn't leave with him when he leaves the office. It doesn't extend beyond his own local church. Look what Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. I have no authority on other local churches. That's not my realm of authority. It doesn't drift into realms that belong to others. The authority that elders exercise belongs to Christ. And elders are simply stewarding that authority for the good of Christ's beloved church that's among them. So if an elder is exercising authority because he has to in order to feel good about himself, because he wants the fame of standing at the front of a room and wearing a microphone, because he, because he loves just bossing people around, he is not exercising Christ's authority. He's like Denethor. Remember him? Any Lord of the Rings fans? Uh, Denethor, he, he's like the steward of Gondor who, who takes the role of king, but he's not the king. We need the return of the king. Anyway, that little teaser. So... The authority of elders is based, comes from God's authority. Secondly, it's meant to be used for the good of their fellow members. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Shameful gain is the idea of like doing it to, to advance yourself, to get money, get fame, any of that kind of stuff. But eagerly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples be an example to the sheep. Serve the sheep willingly. Be willing to suffer loss in order to lead them well. That's the way th these men are to steward the authority of Christ. It's why Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, exercisers of oversight, to care for, this is, it's actually the word shepherd, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. His own blood. You don't belong to me because I'm the pastor, one of the pastors of Grace Fellowship Church. You, like me, belong to Jesus. The church belongs to Christ. He died for her. That He paid the price. It was his own blood. And then he took certain individuals and he made them overseers, these elders of the church. And these elders of the church are reporting to King Jesus. So Paul says, watch your life and watch the flock. Care for them. Shepherd them. What does a shepherd do? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the good shepherd. He is actively leading his 
flock for their good, for their prosperity. He's, he's feeding, he's watering, he's protecting, he's pointing, he's bringing back. And of course, every under-shepherd is going to follow the example of the chief shepherd. And this elder authority is only to be used by qualified people. I'm going to take the time just to point this out, that elders of a church can only be male. One of the qualifications is it can only be a male. That's not the only qualification. I knew of a church that chose their elders every year, and they did it by putting the name of every man in the church in a basket, and then the first six names that came out were the elders for that year. That is folly on a million levels. <laughs> uh, if, that's a, if that's your tradition, I would love to talk to you more about it. Um, that's, that, it's, it's like making the only qualification that he's male and breathing. No, <laughs> no. But it does rule out half of our membership right off the bat or more. But it's clear in the Bible. Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, which is in the original is a one woman kind of man. And then you just have the, the masculine pronoun throughout. It's his children. He cannot be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He can't be a drunkard. So there's simply no question that the New Testament conceives of women serving in the office of elder. I've spoken on this at length other times. I'm not going to take a ton of time to do it here. I will speak more to it, uh, God willing, next Sunday when we talk about deacons, the role of women in the church. But one thing that's often missed when this discussion about the restriction of elders being to qualified males is, is one thing it protects. It protects family order. So wives are repeatedly called to place themselves under their husband's authority. Husbands are repeatedly called to love their wives and that is done in part by leading their wives, exercising that authority. Otherwise the command to submit is just nonsense. She has to submit to something. So. Imagine this, you've got a very capable woman, and we have lots of them in this church, but imagine one of them is made an elder in a local church, and her husband is not. She is now put into a position where she has to break one command of God in order to fulfill another command of God. One command of God is lead the church. The other command of God is submit to your husband. So I think there are lots of other texts we could turn to, but I just think this is a very obvious one that is often missed. Having only qualified males as elders protects marriages. And I guess I should add, once again, that according to the Bible, there are only two genders or two sexes. There are male and female. I am aware of the statistically rare occasion of the intersex people. I understand that. It's a complicating factor. I've spoken about these things at length again, but I just think it's worth saying in a, in a day and age where there's, there's a lot of falsehood being said about these things, male and female, he created them. And it's out of the pool of males that elders are to be chosen in a local church. So they must be male, but they must be men of upstanding moral character. This is where you need to look at 1 Timothy 3. And um, I'm just going to read it. You try to follow it. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now, lists like that are like your neighbors, easy to nod at, a little harder to get to know. (laughs) But here's a list that you need to know. Do you know what sober-minded means? Do you know what respectable means? Do you know what it means to be above reproach? I gotta tell you, I have to look those things up all the time. (laughs) I can't remember them all. And so one of the things we do at our church is when we're putting a man forward to be evaluated as a future elder, we send you a list and we take every one of those words and then we define it. We've we've gone to all the, done all the work for you. Here's, Here's what this word means. And then we ask a series of questions under that word. Can you see that this man is qualified in this particular area? Members, that's a huge responsibility you have. Which is why when a man's put forward for elder, you might think to yourself, I don't know him that well yet. Well, then have him over and get to know him and ask him your questions because it's on you as the members of the church to evaluate him for the fitness of the office. I mean, it's, it's quite something as, as an elder of this church, I am reevaluated. And when I am reevaluated, that means all 200 people who are members of this church are all looking at my life and they're looking at that list in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20 and uh, that compiled list and they're, they're, they're comparing. Does Paul look like this? And they're giving honest answers saying, yeah, you know, you could probably use a little work here. Or no, he's, he's like completely off his rocker here. You say, wow, that's like pretty, it's pretty intense. You bet it's intense because what would happen in a local church if somebody bossy and arrogant got hold of pastoral authority? I'll tell you what would happen in the church. Read the news, right? We've seen enough of that in local churches all across the world. You know, uh, the, the number one mistake, I get asked by a lot of churches for help with various things, and uh, I just, I, the, the number one mistake churches make is, is they blow through that list, and they don't even know what the words mean, and they kind of just look at somebody, and they say, well, you got a nice family, and you can talk at the front of the room, and you don't appear to be an axe murderer. You would make a great pastor. And I think, man, you have, you, you, God has given us everything we need right there. Just slow down. Our process is slow. It seems interminably slow sometimes, but I'd rather be slow and right most of the time. <laughs> Third qualification. You've got to be able to understand and explain and teach the Bible. Just quickly here, 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's the only skill in the list. The rest is character qualities. The only thing he's got to be able to do is handle God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. That's what your job is. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So he's got to be able to understand, explain, and teach the Bible because that's the realm of his authority. And the fourth qualification, he's got to be willing to give and to serve. Acts chapter 20, verse 3, and all 
things I have shown you. This is Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus. I've shown you, he's, telling, he's calling on them to follow his example, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If, if you can't live by it's more blessed to give than to receive, don't be an elder. Shepherding is work. And, and not only is it just the work of doing the work of shepherding, but you're, you're a sinner still, so sometimes you mess up, sometimes you're misunderstood, you're, you're just not perfect. And that does not invalidate your exercising of authority, but it means you're not going to do it perfectly. So, members have their realm of authority, elders have their realm of authority, and I think you could, you could say it this way, the elders' realm of authority is best understood as the general oversight of the church. They're to lead the church, they're to make the decisions in the general affairs of the church. They're calling the church to obey God's word, which means that members will surrender oversight of the general affairs of the church to the elders. So in our church member meetings, we don't vote on things, say, like service times or, or school Sunday school curriculum, that kind of thing, um, an, an overall ministry direction. These are things where elders take leadership. Elders lead, members follow, not unlike the very best marriages. Now, how does that all work together? This is point number three, dancing with the stars. I don't know what that means. It's the only thing I can think of. Dancing with the stars. It seems to me that when this is working right, it's like a great dance. You know, the, the very first congregationalist written work was by a Frenchman in France, uh, Jean Morellet. He wrote a book, I will not say in French, but I'll say it with a French accent. A treatise on Christian discipline and that's a terrible accent. A treatise on Christian discipline and polity. He wrote that uh, somewhere around 1590, 1590. And guys like Calvin hated it. The reformers hated it. They did not believe in congregationalism because they thought it would lead to anarchy, political anarchy. We always forget that, you know, we're, we're reading the Bible in our own body politic. It's hard to, to just understand things. Anyway, I think that same fear is alive today. And, and it's alive often in church leaders who seem to me to be trying to consolidate all the power into the office of the elders or the pastors. This is often called a model of church government called elder rule, where members have no say really in anything. We, we don't believe in that. So we think elders serve by lovingly leading. If you're a dad, you know what I mean. Dads don't lead their, their family to Disneyland. Your family just goes with you to Disneyland because it's fun. Dads lead their family out into the backyard to rake the leaves and spring cleaning. That's when you're leading. You call on the family, come on, we're going to go clean the backyard. And the family might be thinking, of them, they may be saying it too, but they may be thinking, this is a terrible time. This is, this, there's much better things to do. Uh, I don't really want to do this. And if a dad is a good leader. He just says, hey, come on, guys, we're going to do it. Let's go. Leadership implies that you're going to do things you don't necessarily want to do. I just think you've got to come to terms with that. Tom Landry was a coach of the Dallas Cowboys who gave this great quote. I love it. He's talking about coaching, and, and a lot of shepherding is coaching. He says, coaching 
is making men do what they don't want to do so they can become what they want to be. Thanks, coach. Elders are to lead, right? We know that. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word rule, that's not my favorite translation of the word because it, it, it sounds a little more heavy-handed than I think Paul's getting at there. It's just a word that means guide, direct, lead, actively help. It's often translated manage, take care of things, oversee. 1 Timothy 3.1, right? The, the saying's trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer. What's an overseer? It's a man who's in the office of overseeing. It's one who guards. It's one who supervises. First Timothy, or rather, First Peter 5, 2 again. Shepherd the flock of God is among you, exercising oversight. What does shepherd mean? It means to lead. It means to guide. It means to rule. Exercising oversight is just the verbal form of overseer. So supervise, guard, oversee the flock. I'm just trying to make it clear that elders are to exercise their authority by leading the general affairs of the church. And that may be from something as simple as how often the church has the Lord's Supper to something more complex as to how members' meetings are run. But their authority is never to be used in a domineering or in a demanding way. It's to be used to guide the church towards godliness. Good elders understand the difference between principle and preference. When it's a matter of principle, I can take you to a verse in the Bible and say, you must do this. You must because it's God has revealed it. When it's a matter of preference, your elders may come to you and say, the Bible is silent on this matter, but based upon our observation of these things and these other texts that don't directly relate but help us you know, think through these things, we would like the church to go in this direction. But we can't put a must on it. And then what do the members do? The members serve by lovingly submitting. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you. It's the word ruling or, or managing. Uh, we, we, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So there you go, member. Your posture toward your elders, I realize this is weird because I'm an elder here, but your posture toward your elders is to respect them and to esteem them. Respect and esteem. That is to be the general posture of members toward elders. You see this in a place like Hebrews chapter 13. Um, the writer to the Hebrew Christians says in verse 24, greet all your leaders. Leader, he uses the word leaders there, which is just, that's what it is. One who leads, guides, rules, governs. In verse 7, he says, remember your leaders, imitate their faith. In verse 17, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Remember what submission is? Submission is willingly putting myself under the authority of another. I, elders cannot subject you. It's not what they're called to do. You as a member are called to put yourself under their authority. You are willfully doing that. That's what a wife does in a marriage. She willfully puts herself under the authority of her husband. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
It might surprise you to know how often your elders think about that last phrase. You want to know why membership is so important to us? Because all 202 of you, I believe, I will give an account for if I die tomorrow before the Lord. If you're here and you're not a member, we would urge you to become a member, but I bear no responsibility before God for you. None. I'll do good to you as much as I can. But you know who I'm worried about? Is the 202 of you who've identified with Jesus, and my job is to help you get to the finish line. That's what I'm concerned about. Think of those words. You want to be an elder one day? Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. (laughs) Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That's of no advantage to you. Groaning elders doesn't help you. The general posture of a member is to bend to the leadership of her elders. And the general inclination of the elders is to lead the church where they believe the church should go. And each one is faithfully exercising the authority granted to them by God. Kids, I don't know if you've ever watched hockey. It's the greatest sport ever invented. But if you've seen a hockey game, you'll know that the players have a kind of authority. And the referees have a different kind of authority. And each of them is to function in their specific realm, even though there's lots of overlap. They're all on the ice at the same time. But players aren't supposed to call penalties, and referees aren't supposed to take a stick on the ice and try to get to the puck. Each one understands their realm of authority. And when that's done well, you get to behold the beautiful game. Let me end by making five quick observations. Number one. What we're talking about here is elder-led congregationalism. We are not a strictly congregational church. We are not an elder-ruled church. We are an elder-led congregational church. Elder-led congregationalism is not the same thing as democracy. Democracy is a form of government, democratic representative governance. But elders are not like elected politicians meant to represent the interests of their constituency or worse, the interests of special interest groups within the church. And members are not voters of the electorate who pick and choose their leaders depending on whatever serves them best. Number two, elder-led congregationalism encourages members to live by biblical principle rather than by mere preference. Think about this. Members may be called to affirm to the office of elder a man they don't particularly enjoy the personality of, but who is qualified and called to the office and therefore is a gift to Christ's church. Or look at it from the other angle. Members may be called to remove from the office of elder a man they deeply love because it becomes evident he's not qualified to remain in that office, either due to some character flaw or lack of skill with the word of God, or worst case, he starts holding to a different gospel. So we get to live by principle rather than preference. Number three, elder-led congregationalism rightly limits elder authority. Elders may be called to lead the members of the church to use their authority in a way that impedes the direction the elders would like to go. Does that make sense? So if elders see themselves as stewards of God's authority, they may be called to lead the church um, 
I can't think of a good example off the top of my head, but by, based on your faces, I'm saying you're having trouble with this one. Okay, they may be called to use their authority to, to help the church make a decision on something, and the elders want to go A, and they present you know, A and B before the members of the church, and because they're, you know, there's this relationship they have with the church, they're leading, but they're saying, church, we need your input on this, and the church says, oh, we like B, and the elders will submit to that. They understand the limits of their authority. It's a matter of preference. It's not a biblical, biblically revealed thing. Members, um, elders may have to surrender their preferences. Uh, so they're going to, they're gonna, you know, this is what the Bible says, yes, we will do it. But when it comes to preferences, they're going to surrender preferences. Trust me, that happens a lot. Number four, elder-led congregationalism provides this unifying clarity of roles. Members concern themselves with guarding the gospel in other members and in the pulpit. So members are working together in their realm of authority and they're, they're in the, those big picture things, they understand where they are. Elders are concerning themselves with leading the church and proclaiming the gospel and managing the affairs, the general affairs of church life. Number five, elder-led congregationalism creates this lovely dance. And if you've ever really danced, then you will know that at the heart of a couple I'm talking about real dancing, not what you people do, like just thing, like, like real dancing, where you're holding on to a partner and going across the floor. Don't judge. Uh, if you've ever waltzed, then you will know that the key to being a great couple waltzing is trust. One trusts the other. One leads, one follows. And I think that's a good image of local church life. It requires, if, if these roles are understood, it requires the elders to trust their members. God is going to work through our members. And it requires the members to trust their elders. God is going to work through these fallen but godly men. And when the whole church understands that, when all the members are living on mission and we're happily following the leadership of their elders, even if I don't really agree with this particular decision or I don't understand the reason for certain things, and the elders are, are carefully leading the members from the word and they're calling on them to align their values and their actions to the Bible, they're modeling that in their own life, they're being clear, this isn't a Bible thing, this is just where we think we should go, then I think the church exists in loving unity. That is elder-led congregationalism. Members exercising their limited and specific authority, elders exercising their limited and specific authority, and all of it is done in love. And that's not just a little like end the sermon thing. All of it has to be done in love. And if it is, it works, it works loving wonderfully, wonderfully. Let's pray together. Father, We pray that we would work hard to understand what you want us to be. In particular, when we gather together and we pray we would do it well and do it because we're convinced it's in our Bibles and do it for your glory. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.